Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Yeah. Jump back um, in my uh, archaeological Bible. It talks about the Pentecost attracted Jews from all over the world. Yep. So if you think about the uh, Assyrians taking the ten tribes off, mm-hmm. never be seen again. Um, were some of those people coming into Jerusalem? Uh, and then it was God's way of getting the gospel back to those and maybe that's a stretch, but uh, you know, getting the gospel to those lost tribes of, of Israel. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you look, if you study the Book of Acts and how the gospel proceeds from Jerusalem, um, and you know, God uses the uh, diaspora, which is you know, the the persecution drove Jews out, and then the, you know, you have the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and then you have all what were known as the Hellenized Jews, which were all the Jews who lived in the Greek-speaking world, and that's where I'm, I'm lumping a bunch of stuff here historically, but you've heard us refer to the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Septuagint was written because the majority of Jews, in terms of just population numbers, became Greek speakers rather than Hebrew speakers, and the children couldn't read the Old Testament, so they they had to get an Old Testament that was Greek. So anyway, you have the Hellenized world. That Hellenized world was who came into Jerusalem during Pentecost. So they were literally from all over the place. That's absolutely right. And then, of course, like, you know, you have the um, Ethiopian eunuch who came there to Pentecost and he's on the road trying to go back to Ethiopia and that's when he runs into Philip, right? And so we see the gospel end up in Africa and we don't ever get that direct dotted line connection but we kind of can know, okay, there was, a, there was the first African we know that heard the gospel and then we see a little later on we have this giant contingent of Christians in Africa which ends up becoming Afri- Africa becomes hugely influential in Christian history first, like starting in 3rd century, 4th century especially. Anyway, but yes. Yes? I had a, earlier I had a question about timing of Pentecost that I think Mike just answered it before I asked. But the question being, why do you think it was 40 days from Passover to Jesus rising and then 10 more days if Pentecost is 50? Why was there needed to be a delay there? Uh, but if all of these people are going to be there for Count Pentecost, then that, that may be the answer. Yeah, I agree. So that this miracle can be heard by everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes. If it was one day, they wouldn't have been there. Correct. I think uh, that's dead on. I think there's some other things. Number one, Christ appeared to them for 40 straight days after his ascension. So he was there during, he was crucified at Passover. You mean after resurrection? Yeah, he appeared to them for 40 days after his resurrection. So we have 40 of the days right there. And then, as we're going to see, we're going to study Pentecost more. We're not going to get it through it all today. But we're going to see that there's this connection between Pentecost and a lot of things that happen in the Old Testament that God is, like, giving us these pictures of. 
And, and then, of course, because all the nations are coming in uh, and they're sticking around for Passover and Pentecost before they go back home. I think that was a big factor, too. Correct. We got a, that's a good reminder. We're gonna have we're gonna have flames of fire. Yeah. Well, well, we're gonna have little hats that burn. Yeah. Real fire. Yes. Yes. And each of us has to learn how to share the gospel in a different tongue that's not ours. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, there's another aspect of tongues that may not be immediately apparent. And while we're not going to get into the burning question that's on our checklist of what's the deal with tongues and how does it all work uh, today, we will get there. But I want to just focus on um, this, this other aspect of tongues that is... You know, it's related to this idea of the reversal of what happens at Babel, but it has to do with something else. Now, when Paul is speaking to... Oh, by the way, I left a thought out before I go there. Let me just talk about this real quick. When you study Paul's letters, Paul tends to have a pattern, and his pattern tends to be that he starts the first section of the letter with these really important what I'll call philosophical or theological truths. And typically, it takes about half of the letter. Now, Romans blows that out because it's the first 11 chapters. I'm sorry, first eight chapters. Um, and then, that's not true, the first 11 chapters. And then 12, 13, 14, it's the second half, which I'm about to describe. But in most letters, it's about half of the letter is, let me make sure you understand this really important theological truth. And then the next half is, now what does that mean? So in Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters talking about this notion of us being saved by grace. And the last half is then, so what does that mean? And what it means is unity in the faith. And everything flows out. It starts with this idea of walking worthy of the calling we have received. That's the very first verse of the here's what it means part. You need to walk worthy of the calling you've received. What would that look like? Well, you need to be unified. And then let me just keep breaking that down for you. First of all, no, you're not all going to have the same job. But that doesn't mean that any person's more important than another person. All the jobs are so that you can be unified and still be effective. And each one of those jobs is to build up everybody else. And then it gets into you know the famous passages of husbands submitting to their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents. All of that is for what? So that we're unified. The whole thing is be of one accord. You are one community. You have one Lord, one baptism, one faith. That's the whole point of the book of Ephesians, is this idea. So I just think that's really significant when we're talking about being baptized in the Spirit and what happened there in Pentecost. 
They, we saw that. When you study the book of Acts, it just leaps off the page. Like in my discipleship group, the very first book we ever study is the book of Acts. And I invariably, I never have to say anything. I will get, wait, why don't we do that? Wait, why don't we do this? Uh, when did that practice stop? Um, why does the church look like this anymore? I don't have to say it. I know that's what's going to be obvious. Because when you look at the early church, they look different than we look typically. So... That's all was initiated at Pentecost. And if we're studying pneumatology and we're studying being baptized in the Holy Spirit, this has got to be one of the byproducts of our study. Or we're just like doing some sort of meaningless intellectual exercise. Wait, this means unity. Unity. Okay. Just want to make sure I understood what this was. Unity. Yes. Um, we define ourselves by our differences as Christians. What was Christ's last prayer? What's the high priestly prayer before he goes to Gethsemane? God, that they would be unified as you and I are unified. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that they're unified like that. It's pretty unified. Well, pretty unified, exactly. Yes, I think that's true. And, and like, you know, the uniformity looks very, very different if God's not involved in that. Correct. But the, I mean, I'll just, this, the, 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 the interesting part is that all the not unified people will tell you that they're reading from the same book. They just happen to know what it means and you don't. Well, I mean, I just think there's a bunch of good willing people who think the same thing. I just know that somehow we've gone off, like we've, we've gone off the reservation, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, like, there's a lot of people who they very genuinely believe the Scripture is their authority. And they all believe that, and they all believe it's obvious. And yet, here we are dividing ourselves by our differences. And I'm just saying to you, I, I think it's got to grieve the Lord our lack of unity, because this is what he spends, I mean, there's more than this book about this, but Ephesians for sure is about it, and Christ's emphasis at the end of his ministry was about it, and in, you know, with the Holy Spirit, what it says we are, why it says we receive the Holy Spirit is in large measure so that we will be unified. Mm-hmm. Um, glorify or the Reformation. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of good that came out of that. Uh-huh. It also led to all the division. Too. Mm-hmm. So, no doubt. I was going to say Martin Luther wasn't trying to divide the no, church. He was not. Well, initially. He yeah, initially. initially. Right. No, a lot of good meaning people. I mean, far be it for me. I mean, these are heroes in the faith and people who gave their lives for the gospel in many cases. I'm just saying that like somehow this is what we as Christians should start aspiring to. We should be led by the Holy Spirit and be seeking to unify with brothers and sisters and not define ourselves by our differences because that wasn't his, that's not his uh, calling on our life. We're to be the new community. See, Babel is the divided community. 
Babel is we're all going to go our own way based on our little sect. Christianity is, nope, I'm building a new people who all speak the same language. Right? This language idea, and that's what I was about to say. There's another aspect of tongues. So when Paul speaks of tongues in 1 Corinthians, he has this one section in chapter 14 that's very interesting. Because if you, were, you may not know this, we'll get into this a lot when we get into the gifts of the Spirit and specifically talk about the gift of tongues and the various ways people interpret the concept of, excuse me, of tongues. But the Corinthian church was awash in chaos. And there were uh, obviously this group of people who flouted their, or flaunted, I should say, their spirituality and the proof of their spirituality was that they spoke in tongues. And Paul's trying to get that reined in so that there's some order going on. And he has to address that. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now Paul here is quoting Isaiah chapter 30, I'm sorry, chapter 28. And this is what it says in Isaiah. For he will speak to this people with stammering speech and in a foreign language. He had said to them, this is the place of rest. Let the weary rest. This is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So the context of these words in Isaiah is covenant rejection. The nation of Israel is rejecting God and rejecting his covenant. And on account of the immaturity of God's people and their immature behavior, God says, okay then. I'm going to speak to you in a foreign tongue. You won't listen to me in your language. I'm going to have people come speak to you in a different language. And you still won't listen to them. And this, this concept of God speaking in a different language as a sign of judgment is something that we've seen before in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 28, 49. The Lord will bring a nation from far away from the ends of the earth to swoop down on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you will not understand. Jeremiah 5, 15. I am about to bring a nation from far away against you, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. It is an established nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know and whose speech you do not understand. So when the nation of Israel starts hearing foreign languages, this is one sign of God removing their kingdom from them, of saying, you were stubborn, and now you're about to face something harsh. This is what Habakkuk is prophesying is going to happen with the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are going to come in and take away their kingdom because of their arrogance and because of their immaturity. Matthew 21 Christ says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, he's speaking to the Pharisees and to the Israelites, and given to a people producing its fruit. So, 
what happens at the day of Pentecost? All of these Jewish people begin to hear God glorified in all of these various other languages. And it's basically, y'all were stubborn. You ignored me. You ignored the clear sign that I'm the Messiah. We see this, by the way, in every one of the sermons in, in Acts. Y'all knew. You were told he was coming. He showed up, and y'all killed him. And so now, because they rejected the Messiah, Pentecost is the beginning of that kingdom being stripped away. Any thoughts on that? Yes. Kind of to the thought of what being spoken to in a language you're not your own reminds me of Belteshazzar. Mm-hmm. It was the hand on the wall. Mm-hmm. It was a language born to him, but it was a curse to him. Mm-hmm. It just made me think about that. Mm. It's good. So the, the audience is the leaders of Israel, right? Yes. And they're, they're kind of getting spanked. Yes. Absolutely. And hey, you know, Jesus even said, was it on the Palm Sunday? He said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Yes. First. Absolutely. Whose words is that on verse 43? Christ. Yeah, if they were in your Bible, they'd be in red letters. Okay, well, we're, we're at kind of at a stopping point because the next thing I want to talk about is the connection between Pentecost and Sinai and all the symbolism there. So um, I see that church is just about to get out. There's youth that are starting to filter into the lobby. Any last thoughts or questions before we wrap up today? Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking about, I can't remember which verse it was, but when you were showing the, talking about like the unity and that pointing out like how different the church looks compared to what the text says that we should look like and just how we can't do it ourselves. Correct. Like we need the Holy Spirit to like, I don't think with all of the theologians and Christian intellectuals and very faithful people that are really, really trying to do it, for some reason it's still not like all gelling. I feel like it's something supernatural has to happen. For, for us to get that right. I agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things, unfortunately, is that, and I'm, I can speak for myself, I find myself having this happen, is I can become much more concerned with, quote, doctrinal correctness or theological correctness than the actual mission of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the mission, right? And it's to His glory. Frankly, like, we can make the Bible even an idol, as weird as that may sound, or we can make theology an idol, when ultimately he's the one that should be glorified, and how is he glorified when his people are unified is how he says he wanted to be glorified. And we're to be the hands and feet of Christ. Don't you think it's a human nature in our prosperity to institutionalize our faith, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Bible schools and I love theology and philosophy too and those kind of things but you think about how the church has spread in maybe more undeveloped parts of the world mm-hmm. they don't they can't afford churches and seminaries and these things at the truth of the scripture right 
and it's in house churches and it's in the unity of the essentials. You're not getting bogged down in transubstantiation issues or the gospel would never go anywhere. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it's funny is like we have a uh, somebody we know, you know, and like they, they visited this church and they said to me, it doesn't seem like y'all are really that spirit-led there. And I know what they meant. They're a charismatic believer, and they think that you have to go to a place where people are obviously speaking in tongues in the way they interpret that phrase in the pews. But I just thought, this is like, and this is not, my comment, by the way, is not a judgment against them. It's just a state of the way things are. How interesting that now we are positing that we could have a spirit-less set of Christians. Because <laughs> that's it's one or the other, right? You either have the Holy Spirit or you do not have the Holy Spirit. So we would be, some, we would be positing this, uh, that there could be this whole building of Christ followers who don't actually have the Holy Spirit. Now, when I asked them if that what they were suggesting, they were like, oh, no, 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 of course not that. I was like, okay, well, I don't understand. Help me follow, like walk me through what the objection is. And it's just an example of where we, we go sideways on the unity question, right? And um, anyway, it's just a reminder to us all, it's a reminder myself, God's, the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost to create this new community that all spoke in one language, that was a reversal of the different languages. But did they continue to speak in that language after that day, or they went back to their... Well, languages. I'm using that metaphorically. We all should be on the same sheet of music is the better metaphor, maybe, in our vernacular, right? We should all be of one mind, of one purpose. What do you do, though, with, like, the creeping in of the critical race theory and the mm-hmm. fusion of one Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, I just saw somebody wrote a book and said, Lord, help me to hate white people more. I mean, that's like, I mean, they're like seriously mm-hmm. people in the, in the church. Or of course. Like a church or any building or whatever you want to say that don't want to be a part. Right. So <laughs> I agree with what you're saying, but I would just say we can tend to, going back to our whole thing about we think that the U.S. is what the world revolves around, we can tend to get, and not that these aren't important issues, by the way. Let me make sure I'm not diminishing the importance of some of these issues. But we can tend to become focused on these historical anomalies that we are dealing with rather than the universal, eternal mission of the church. And all that is is sin. We can, we can just literally list any modern manifestation and we just put equals sin, equals sin, equals sin, equals sin. And sin should be dealt with in the same way that the church has always dealt with sin or dealt with sin for some time. I mean, it has, I shouldn't say always because we live in an era now when we maybe don't deal with sin at all. But we simply, you know, we are representatives of the truth and we're representatives of the love of, God, of Christ and the redemptive work of Christ. You know, like it says in Corinthians, we have been recipients of reconciliation in order that we can become ministers of reconciliation. And our ministry is the reconciling of that which is outside of God back to relationship with God. 
That's the biggest purpose. So, like, people are over here worried about all these little plates that they're spinning, and it's like, okay, we can cut through all that noise and make it about the making of disciples. Because when you make disciples, these are people who are obedient to Christ. And that's another, it's a whole other diatribe we could start, I suppose. But, you know, it, it's not the get-out-of-jail-free card version of, of Christianity. It's not the, the being saved is the only message we've got. You know, I, God bless the people who preach the gospel every Sunday, but there's more past the Christ died for your sins part. And it, if we were as a church focused on that unifying, reconciling message of making disciples, I got to believe that as a person is matured in Christ and the Holy Spirit, whatever this thing is that worries us, that ends up falling away. Because it can't coexist when the Spirit of Christ is infused into their thinking. But if you're not submitting to one another and accountable to one another, there's no unity. Correct. There's just none. Correct. I think one of the easy things to do is not to do what the splitters do. Yes. Right? So it's it's to not say, oh, well, you must not really be a Christian because yes. of whatever. Or you might, like, my kids are like, well, what if, what about Catholics? What do you I'm like, honey, there are all my children and girls, so I can call them all honey. <laughs> honey, all of there are people in the Catholic Church who are Christians, just like there are people in the in our church who are Christians. And there are people that come to our church that aren't Christians, and there are people that go to the Catholic Church that aren't Christians. So you don't know, and it's not your job to figure it out, like figure out who a Christian is. It's not your that's not your role to say, oh, you must not be a Christian because of whatever, you know? Yeah. Like I grew up in a church that was very exclusive in terms of its philosophy about, oh, this is the right way, right? And the joke was, uh, it's Lutheran church, the joke was, there's, they're going to be in heaven, the Lutherans are going to be in heaven and, and think, uh, what are all these other people doing? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yep. Alright, well let's pray real fast. Lord, thank you for this discussion and uh, we, we want to be unified. Uh, we want to be of one accord because ultimately we want to glorify you. We want the world to see us and be confused by what they see and ask us the question, how is it possible uh, that y'all are so unified and you're so filled with love and um, that you seem to have this supernatural bond and we can point them to you. So I just pray that that starts here in our little class, that we would be unified and that we would be uh, representations of what you prayed for. I pray that we would be as close to one another as, as you and the Father are. And that might seem impossible in the flesh, but obviously, Lord, it is possible through the Spirit. So we just pray that that's so. Um, and I pray you give us ideas throughout the week of ways we can be more unified and we can bring the church even closer together. And I pray for our leadership here at Frisco Bible that they would be um, impassioned with this concept as well. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. 
Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.